0: Uh, The talk is about appreciating joy. I'm talking about appreciating joy in relationship to the understanding that there's a vast range of joy and sorrow in this world. The Brahma Viharas, the four Brahma Viharas that the Buddha taught and the mindfulness practice are tools to help liberate us through the process of understanding. Just to go over what you've heard a few times, the loving-kindness practice or the metta practice is the foundation of the openness of heart that we do in the Brahma-Vihara practice. It's a well-wishing. It's learning how to bless. And then we orient this openness of heart toward the pain in this world or the suffering in this world and that's compassion. We're caring about pain. And then with the mudita, or empathetic joy, we're orienting this openness of heart toward the joy in this world and appreciating it. Uh, so you see how that uh, balances orienting toward pain and caring, orienting p- toward joy and appreciating. The, the last Brahma Vihara, or Upeka, equanimity, is having a very deep balance of heart in the face of the joys and sorrows in this world. So the heart is connected, open. Which is coming from uh, understanding the context of the first three Brahma Viharas. How understanding or wisdom intersects these practices is that with uh, metta practice, understanding is what purifies the love. And with the karuna, or compassion practice, understanding purifies the care. With the empathetic joy, understanding is what's purifying the appreciation. And then with the equanimity practice, uh, understanding is purifying the non-attachment or the balance As you've seen with the loving-kindness practice, or the well-wishing, maybe we will say a phrase like, may you be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. Well, if we bring understanding to that phrase, we will experience a paradox. And in some ways, all of the Brahma-viharas have that paradox. You know, may you be free from suffering. May your happiness never end well, (laughs) you know, in the context of how the life really is, that this is this vast change and joy and sorrow, uh, then this will seem like a paradox. Uh, So it it requires a very deep understanding that that we're wishing this uh, in the face of the joy and sorrow in this world. Can we wish well even though we're in a world of joy and sorrow? Can we care about pain even though we're in a world of suffering? Can we appreciate joy even though that it doesn't last? Can we have this deep balance in the face of the joy and sorrow? So you can see how powerful these tools are that the Buddha taught. They're meant to be a protection for us rather than lost in reacting to pain with aversion and fear and lost in reacting to pleasure with attachment we bring the four brahmaviharas or mindfulness to our experience we can see in the first three brahmaviharas that love isn't just about pleasure Certainly, you've seen that in this week. You know, that we're up against that. We might want the practice or a person or a moment to yield what we want from it, but that that isn't courage and that that isn't love. In terms of the compassion and empathetic joy, The practice of compassion is transforming our awareness of suffering into this in this world into compassion. For me, when I learned this practice, it was like being given gold. You know, when you think about the possibility of this, you know, given that we're given we've taken birth into this world, but there is quite a bit of pain. That we can do that. That we can transform that awareness of it. Into care, this wonderful feeling of care. If we understand this, then we will value the pain in our life. We'll value the pain in this world, and we can learn from it. It's worthy of our attention, because it's what, how life is. The mindfulness practice helps us to understand that it's not my pain, not your pain, Uh, but it's pain that we can value and care about because it's present in our lives. So the pain in this world is a doorway into this wonderful feeling of care. Empathetic joy, as I said before, is orienting the heart toward the joy in this world. And the Buddha taught, actually, that it was not so easy to do this. It might feel wonderful, but he said that affection for the being that we're wishing Mudita for has to be present. He said that compassion was usually easier for us. We've talked about how the experience that seems so much like empathetic joy but isn't, um, is over-exuberance. You know, it's, it's that feeling of what goes up <laughs> can keep going up and up and up and it gets too high. I like to uh, remind myself of this when I look at the face of the Buddha. You know, the, the picture, that image, isn't like, he's not flying high as a kite. You know, there's there's a smile, but it's really balanced. It's not off balance. The joy has a quiet joy to it. The opposite of mudita, or empathetic joy, is jealousy, envy, comparison, competitiveness. And you can see with either the over-exuberance or the attachment to joy or the opposite, the the envy or the comparison, uh, it doesn't include wisdom. They don't include understanding. Even in the face of change in this world, even in the face of the joy and sorrow in this world, can we learn to appreciate joy? If we can care about the pain in this world, and we can appreciate the joy in this world, there's a possibility of getting less caught in addiction, clinging, or cruelty and ambition. On one of my first uh, mindfulness retreats, my teacher told a story about having been a monk in Asia for a long time. And when he came first to the United States, uh, someone asked him to come to New York City and visit a woman in the hospital there who had been in an iron lung for about 20 years. And I think that any of us who know what a retreat is like even you know, we can make that jump to maybe what it could be like uh, to be in that kind of a situation. You know, it's not like we know, but we can imagine what that person might go through. Uh, But when he came to her and saw her face to face and got a sense of what it must have been like for 20 years to be in that iron lung, he just broke down and he said, you know, how can you take this? And he just started crying, how can you, how can you bear this? And she was very quiet, and, she, and very peaceful. And she said that every once in a while, in the spring or summer, not the winter, a nurse would come in her room and sometimes open the window. And sometimes a gentle breeze would come in through the window and touch her cheek. And she said, that breeze that touched my cheek would tell me all that I would need to know. Appreciating joy. You know, learn, what we're doing is really learning how to be touched by the universe. Each moment, you know, we get so caught in our reactions (laughs) to pleasure and pain and change, and yet what the mindfulness practice and the Brahma-Vihara practices teach us is that uh, happiness and peace is that simple. When we get in touch with uh, this Mudita practice, it can put us through a lot, or the sympathetic joy, uh, because what becomes more visible is our dissatisfaction. You know that we're not good enough somehow. That life somehow isn't yielding enough pleasure. That we're not good enough. Someone else isn't good enough. <laughs> life, life somehow isn't good enough. And why? Why is it that you know we don't have this way of being where we can hear a bird, or feel the breeze, or f- experience the breath? and it be just enough. Coming on a retreat has an aspect of renunciation. The path of purification is divided into three sections, the the morality or sila, which is a kind of letting go and not harming, giving up what we want so that we don't harm. Uh, And it has the aspect of concentration, which we've been working on a lot here. We work on the sealer here, it's given. (laughs) We take the five precepts, and then the concentration, which again, you can see that it's a letting go. It's letting go what we might want or not want, and then just anchoring, 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 and being very, very uncomplicated. It's being very uncomplicated and simple. And by (coughs) developing enough concentration we start to also develop understanding through the (coughs) mindfulness practice by seeing clearly just how life is, learning to come to peace with that. And as you can see in the Brahma-Vihara practices, whenever we (laughs) drop out of the concentration or need to break a barrier, we need to do mindfulness practice. So we develop a lot of understanding in this practice. All of them require being willing to be here with life just as it is, to be vulnerable, to be that exquisitely simple. So being able to receive like the breeze on our cheek and know it can tell us everything. It's just like being able to wish (laughs) someone well, or wish an enemy well, or wish a black fly well. (laughs) <laughs> you know it's it's very simple. In the wisdom practice, we start to get a sense of how vast this world of change that we take birth in really is. And if you look at the course of a day here in practice, you can see how fickle the mind is and how much we do react to uh, wanting things to be a certain way and how hard it is to be simple and to let things be. One of the insights that we get from being able to go through this kind of change like we're doing is that we never know it's going to happen. That's an insight into dukkha. And when we start to really understand this, We see that to be free in this world, or to be liberated, it's not trying to get rid of pain, and it's not trying to get rid of pleasure. But we're trying to see clearly, without embellishment, just how life is. And we start to see that reacting to change is madness. It's not (laughs) the truth of how things are. We get imprisoned by it a lot, but we start to see the potential for happiness, peace, by letting each breath come and go by itself. To let the sound of the flicker come and go by itself. An aspect of renunciation being simple is letting go of control. And this is what allows us to be able to truly Relate to a breath, just like that woman in the line, iron lung related to the sound, the, the feeling of the breeze in her cheek. It's just being that simple and so present. We're not lost in the past. We're not caught in the future. We realize that that's all we have. And we value it so much, that moment of life. And so it, what this being able to be present leads us to is actually valuing the preciousness of our life, knowing that it can help us develop wisdom. One of the things that happens when we start to try to be in the present moment is that we see that it's changing very quickly. You know, and we can say, yes, I know this, uh, but actually to be able to be rena- <laughs> simple enough, renunciate enough, Uh, to really just receive what each moment gives us and then to let it go because it's changing. To receive what each moment gives us and then to let it go because it's changing. Uh, this, This is an art. It's hard for us to be that uncomplicated or simple. In terms of uh, the tradition that this practice has come out of, it's a monastic tradition, and one of the symbols that stand for this is the begging bowl. And if you think of what it's like, if you lived each day, uh, where you had (laughs) your meal come through, uh, someone that you don't know in the village putting food in your bowl, and that's it for the day. You know, this is the tradition that this practice comes from, and why why would why would that be so important? You know, what what is the meaning of that really? That kind of renunciation, and we learn from that to take each moment like the begging bowl. That it's that it's just enough. Maybe we wanted the chicken soup instead of the rice. You know, maybe we wanted. Uh, brownies instead of carrot cake you know whatever it is but then can we be simple enough to just receive and then get how much gratitude we can have for that rather than um, comparing and judging and being so unhappy in both practices in the mindfulness practice and the Brahmavihara Vihara practice how we get to be this simple, is with vitaka vichara, aiming and connecting. You know, it's amazing, but it does require this basic concentration. Uh, so with a mindfulness practice, say it's a breath, or the feeling of the wind on the cheek, anything, it requires the attention to be able to aim and connect with that experience. With a breath, you aim the attention, connect with it, And if you have the courage, it takes courage. The Buddha called it courageous energy. The courage it takes to be with life as it is, to be willing to aim and connect, whether it's painful or pleasant or neutral, to face life just as it is. If we can do that and then sustain it, joyful interest will come. And this is the same in both practices. With our practice right now, say it's mudita, it's being able to say the phrase, understand it, and then connect it. That's similar to connecting with the breath. It's a little harder with this practice because you're having to say the phrase, understand it, and then connect. But you're still having to connect to yourself, another, or another being. and. Th- Ourself, another and another being is a mix of pleasant, unpleasant and neutral. And change. You never know what anybody's <laughs> gonna do really. <laughs> you know, so this takes courage in any moment to do this. Aim, connect, sustain. Joyful interest at some point will arise. The Buddha called this joyful interest uh, the gateway to awakening, the gateway to enlightenment. It's like a doorway we go through. It's a, you smell yourself going through this and you know, oh yeah, I'm getting here. It doesn't depend on pleasure and pain. And that's why it's so joyful. Another description of this is joyful interest It's a deep delight in the truth. A deep delight in things as they are. It's very much like the soft, tender heart of a child. It's that kind of openness and vulnerability that can allow the truth of each moment to touch our heart. It's the intense delight in exploring life as it is. So it's the opposite of a judgmental mind. It's the opposite of a righteous mind, or a dull mind, or a timid mind. Sometimes I describe it as pure exploration. And as, as you can tell, that with the courage it takes to do this, the courage means that we're really willing to let go of the past. And we're really willing to let go of the future. And just really be there and connect. That takes a kind of soft heart, a vulnerability. And it's beautiful when we do this. Pure exploration feels joyful. Pure exploration allows us to move from the conceptual realm very lost in uh, the thinking about experience, to our direct experience of something, whether it's metta or whether it's mindfulness. This is a poem about irises, since there are irises on the altar. It's called Presence. After a long wait, what bloomed was not the flower called iris, but a profound presence in dark purple splendor. It's nice to hear that, after a long wait. (laughs) You know, because that's part of it. It's part of the practice, is after that long wait, what bloomed. One of the joys for me in being at IMS at this time of year, and I think been here for many years at this time of year, are uh, waiting for the peonies to bloom outside of the hall here. And I think about, you know, they were planted way back, way before IMS. Uh, and just the joy. How many people have just seen these? And <laughs> it's, they're incredible. You know, there's no words for that simple joy. And you can see that it doesn't require. Um, what we often think it would take to be really happy. Uh, But it takes the ability to have the time to see the flower clearly. What's so nice about being here is that we have the time and so you can tell how appreciated (laughs) those peonies are. (laughs) You know, it's (laughs) it's like we're in this garden of Mudita. There is joy in this world, you know, and we we forget that there's a lot of joy just with those flowers here, planted here. With pure exploration, we learn to treat each moment equally. It uh, it allows us uh, to include all experience, just like the Brahma Vihara practice starts to allow us to wish all beings well or to feel this appreciative joy for all beings. So whether it's all the categories, or knee pain, or a painful memory, or fear, you know, the pure exploration includes all the black holes that we might go through in life, and all the uh, meteor showers, the joy, the sorrow, the light. I had an old friend that, he was actually an old boss of mine who had come to a three-month retreat here some years ago. And he learned metta at the end of the three-month retreat, left the retreat, uh, and then soon after that he got married. Uh, and that spring, his wife called me and she said, you know, I just want to, she, she, his wife doesn't practice, you know, and she said she just wanted to check something with me about his practice <laughs> I said, okay, you know i didn 't know what was going on, so he, she said, "Well, you know, he works in this really difficult job it 's a very high pressure social services service job, and he comes home sometimes quite irritated and grumpy, and one day he came home uh, having trouble with a person at work who he 's had a lot of difficulty with. And so he came in and he walked in the, r- the living room and slammed the door and he said, may he be happy. <laughs> <laughs> and then he stomped to the bathroom and slammed the bathroom door open and shut and he said, may he be peaceful. <laughs> <laughs> you could hear the toilet cover slam up, may he be liberated. <laughs> and then she said, is this good meditation practice? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I think so. He's trying, you know, even though he was ready to kill that guy, you know he was just you know of course, there was a version going on, but he was still hanging on to those phrases <laughs> so I said. He's trying. <laughs> Give it a little more time. <laughs> we know that even though we do these practices that we're going to be actually facing the reactive mind more. You know, that willingness to face the anger, that willingness to face the fear or the attachment, it's going to become more. And that's the, that the joy in that is that if you, under, if you value it, you will feel joyful about that process of liberation. Sometimes with the mindfulness practice or the Brahma-vihara practice, it can seem more watercolor-ish, you know, than black and white. So in this case, with my friend, it's like maybe 95% of it was aversion. But 5% of it was some trying to bring some metta in. And maybe it would be the opposite sometimes. Maybe it's 95% metta, but still you can feel there's a slight irritation. Or maybe with the mudita practice, you can almost not be jealous, but still there is that presence of wanting something that somebody has. Or maybe we break the barrier, but then the reacting mind comes back. So remember that as we do this practice, the reaction to the pain in the world with aversion, with jealousy, with anger, with fear, with sadness, uh, that will become more visible. The reacting to the joy in this world with over-exuberance, with clinging, with addiction, will become more visible to us. Not being aware of the reactive mind is craziness, is madness. This past November I did a self-retreat and in this retreat I never noticed um, so clearly how much comparing was going on in my mind. Uh, And it was amazing how subtle it could be but just from one moment to the next That stream of dissatisfaction. You know, it wasn't just like I was really attached to a peak experience, which so much of my practice, I would see that one part of a sitting a day I liked, you know, and I would work toward it. And so much of my practice, you know, the amount of food I would eat and how I would walk and where I would walk, it was all sort of motivated by trying to get that good sitting. Uh, And it was so painful. (laughs) you know, over the years. It's not that I let go of it, but it just got more and more painful to just be so attached to that peak experience that slowly it started wearing away some. But then what started to appear was just this this constant little comparisons. Uh, Even when, you know, you look around, notice, oh, I like those shoes. I like that dress. I don't like that skirt. Boy, I really like those socks. You know, just, if you just, oh, boy, look at that hair. Oh, I like you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's incredible when we talk about the peanut gallery. I mean, it's just like this incredible chatter, 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 judgment, judgment, judgment. Uh, and if we start believing these comparisons, there's so much suffering. There's no hope for joy. In fact, comparing kills joy. The more we're identified with comparison, the less possibility for joy, and com- and comparing kills gratitude. Steve and I have a a three word sentence. Uh, mostly, he reminds me of it. Reminds me of it, and it's called the rowboat. And way back when uh, early in our years together, our first year, one time we went down uh, to the ocean in Massachusetts and somebody had lent us a rowboat and we rowed out to this island and had a really wonderful afternoon, um, came back. And the next morning I wanted to go out in the rowboat again. And repeat the experience <laughs> uh, and and Steve and I had this big fight about the rowboat. You know <laughs> it was like as wonderful as that day was that afternoon was together. It was like the next morning it was just the opposite. It was like we just really clashed about going out in the rowboat, and I was so attached you know I was basically it wasn 't the rowboat, but I was just so attached to that it was like a peak experience. Uh, and I suffered tremendously over it for years. You know, <laughs> really, I wanted to repeat that experience. And whenever Steve would sense that I was starting to do that, he'd go, "Oh no, the robot." <laughs> <laughs> so now I can joke about it. Twenty-something <laughs> years later, <laughs> it's amazing how I held on. <laughs> But don't we do this? You know, it's like, how, how many times in this hall have you suffered over being attached to a certain experience? It's amazing what suckers we are. <laughs> so the way that I've slowly learned to work with this kind of pleasant experience and then over-exuberance and then attachment and clinging to a kind of addiction to that peak experience is to start being mindful of enjoyment. And so maybe we won't be at that place where we're mindful of pleasantness. Sometimes it's hard to be that mindful. But we can start to practice with simple things to be mindful of enjoyment. Because if we can be mindful of enjoyment, we can transform our awareness of pleasure and joy to mudita, to appreciation. And if we can shift from attachment to appreciation, uh, we won't get hooked. We start experiencing mudita. And we have that relativity. We can hold the paradox that, yes, this is going to change. This is going to end. Just as we can value the pain in this world and learn to have compassion for it rather than fear and anger. We can, and sorrow and grief. We can also, with the pleasure, we can start to shift from that getting lost and over exuberant and off like a kite to appreciation. This is huge. I mean, this this rowboat story didn't come easy for me, as you can tell. It was a long struggle for me. And I'm not saying I'm finished with it. It's just. <laughs> 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 In fact, uh, (laughs) someone just said they'd lend me a robot. Hmm. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) Hmm. We can notice unpleasantness and aversion with mindfulness, and there's no need to get imprisoned by it. We can notice pleasure and enjoyment and attachment. There's no need to be imprisoned by it. Joy can be highly energized, and just as the Buddha said that it can be the gateway to enlightenment, it can also be the gateway to hell. You know, it can just by that shi- you know that shift of getting caught and clinging. Uh, so it really takes. The willingness not to go off like a rocket, not to get too high, and to learn with to work with the pleasure in this world skillfully, it can really get out of balance when we get too identified. And you know, so, the the mindfulness practice is essential to bring the understanding and the wisdom into that aspect of life. One of the defenses that we use in regard to uh, the Mudita practice, the the opposite of empathetic joy is jealousy. And when I looked at that really closely in my own practice, it would the jealousy would be like this fire. Uh, and the resistance to the experience of jealousy was really hard, but I started to learn to be okay with it. You know, it's okay, it's a human experience. If we resist it, it's really painful and gets us into big trouble. If we can be mindful of it and just treat it like any experience, you let it come and go. Often what's underneath it is a sense of not being good enough. Where there's that worthlessness, that comparing or judging. Uh, and it's, it's very similar to, an, it's like how we relate to each experience in life. If we can start to be mindful of that sense of a lot of our moments not being good enough and learning to be simple and okay and ordinary with them, uh, we start to be able to relate to ourself that way that we're, (laughs) it's like the begging bowl, you see yourself like that empty begging bowl. We're good enough, we're just enough. When I get caught sometimes in worthlessness, one of the things I try to bring in, if I'm getting caught in it, and then that will lead to uh, not wanting to be here, um, is awareness of mortality. Awareness of death. It was a gift that my mother really gave me because she had cancer when I was very young and died when I was 13. And in some ways, I think, for some people, they might not understand that for me, that was really painful. uh, But touching her cold body was like, it woke me up for the rest of my life. Really, it was like... um, there was something about touching her and her being so cold, uh, that it was like an electric shock that um, transformed my understanding of what I was doing here. So at the least it was like I started really searching for understanding, like, what are we you know what are we all doing here? and what, what's going on? Um, it was strange in that um, My friends weren't like that. And my sisters, it was like it just happened, seemed to happen for me. Uh, But when I get into that place of not really valuing the preciousness of the gift of life, I try to bring that awareness in. Uh, Because it's important for us to remember this. (laughs) It's like a whole life can go by where we don't feel like anything's good enough and um, we don't value the gift of it. And if we wait too long, it goes by. So we can use our awareness of mortality to motivate us to search for understanding. You know, we can either get lost in that um, horror of mortality or we can use it as a sense of, oh, maybe we're here to develop wisdom maybe mortality is good for that. Or maybe we're here to develop compassion or metta, that mortality certainly is good for that. Keeps us on our toes. And an in, in, in example of this, in terms of uh, joy, my sister, my middle sister now has had cancer. And she's had chemotherapy for two years, just constant. And I just, sometimes I can't, even from a distance, imagine what it must be like for her. Uh, So this past weekend, she didn't have any for the first time because they're trying to decide what to do next. Uh, But they've decided to do more chemo. So she wrote me today and she said that for just one week and two, two years, uh, she didn't have to have a blood test. And she described it as the purest joy she's ever had. <laughs> you know, and the, it's like I had this little headache, you know. <laughs> and it was like, I was really starting to get like, oh, poor me, I have this headache. You know, and when I read that, it was like, ah, oh, it relativizes our suffering, you know, it relativizes what we're doing here. You know, and how can it be that somebody like in that Iron Lung uh, can experience and describe so beautifully that kind of joy? You know, how is it that when we're we're on a retreat and we're sitting through (laughs) a lot of difficulty that then it is that we come to taste this freedom and this joy? it's because we are up against the wall to the place where we finally let go you know and we're willing we're willing to suffer enough in a in a healthy way to be that simple you know it takes understanding to be joyful there's a heritage here in in the Americas uh, of the Native American tradition of being grateful for life. And there's different ways this is expressed, but one way it is expressed is, I am so grateful for each day of life, that any day is a good day to die. Now this is the courage and the love. It's, it's facing change, it's facing mortality, and appreciating what we have with joy. Whatever it is. <laughs> whatever our karma is. I know that the people who seem to have the deepest understanding are the ones who really appreciate popcorn. <laughs> You know, or fireflies, or a peony. You know, it's like, and we sh- we can share that on a very deep level. <laughs> that simplicity of appreciation. It's it's being able to appreciate a smile. When I came out of my self retreat this November, I was so susceptible to kindness. I've never experienced it so deeply. I was, you know, brought to the Hartford Airport, you know, early December kind of snowy, sleety, you know, and people rushing around and I was my little, open little self coming out of the retreat with my luggage, you know. Oh boy, we're going somewhere, you know. (laughs) I'm out of (laughs) here. You know, it's so exciting, you know, the airport, the Hartford airport, it's like the biggest thing in the world, you know. (laughs) And and people are acting like it's not, you know, the biggest day of their life, you know. They're in a hurry, they're grumpy, and everybody just seems sort of, you know, so irritable and grumpy. And I got up to the counter, and this man was just so kind. And I started crying. (laughs) 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 It was like, it was so touching, you know. One thing to keep in mind is that our minds are very fickle. You know, and try to have patience with that. Uh, When I was in Burma this time, I just want to tell a story about just within a few days how my relationships to this uh, little pack of dogs there changed so dramatically. Uh, So the first night that we all had arrived at the monastery, uh, the manager gave a talk and someone's sandal had been stolen by a dog at that point and he announced to all the yogis to make sure they bring their shoes and sandals inside their kuti, their co- cottage or where they were staying at night uh, so they wouldn't lose their sandals. But I didn't hear this. Uh, so then the, n- this, the couple nights went by and I experienced where I my cottage is... Uh, is kind of off by itself in a beautiful remote little spot overlooking the river. So my experience was that these pack of dogs would come by my cootie and bark all night and keep me awake, just barking, barking, barking. So the first night was sort of okay. The second night was a little worse. And the third night I had so much aversion and I was so irritable the next day. Uh, And I would notice that whenever I walked into my cottage, I know that the custom there, and also in Hawaii, is you take your shoes off before you go in. That's how you do things. So I kn- it never even occurred to me to bring my shoes inside. So then the next night, I had a really good night's sleep. And I really like sleep. I'm attached to sleep. <laughs> so I had a great night, and I woke up, and I opened the door. <laughs> And the reason it had been so quiet is because they were, had eaten my sandals. <laughs> the dogs ate my sandals. And it, uh, it's sort of hard to describe, but in Burma it's really hard to get a new pair of rock ports. You know. it's <laughs> there aren't any. Uh, and I have this lower back problem where I need a sandal that has a strap in the back that holds my uh, back in place. Uh, so I walked down to the meditation hall feeling really irritated. And then, I walked back up to my uh, cottage to do interviews. And as I was walking in, I saw this mangy, thin, the saddest looking dog sleeping really happily underneath my cottage. And I, I got it. I was like, oh, this starving dog ate my sandals. And instead of having all this aversion, I was really grateful that I had fed this dog. And look how fickle that is. And it was just, I was so grateful that I had seen that this dog had had at least some moments of happiness. Uh, And then, maybe a few later, one of the yogis brought me her pair of sandals. And so you see there's that cycling of joy and gratefulness. It's a simple story, but it's um, uh, very much how we live our lives that extreme changeability around pleasant, unpleasant. Another um, thing that would happen for me in Burma, because the river there, the Irrawaddy is so massive and so powerful that it's like a presence at the monastery for everybody, the village people, the monks the nuns and us visitors who come there. The river is so still looking especially at sunrise, so still that when a boat goes by, and boats rarely uh, come by together. It's usually a single boat, an old, ancient-looking boat that we have never seen, they're so old, uh, come puttering down the river. Uh, And the wake that it leaves is just pristine and exquisite. You can just see the wake that it leaves perfectly. And over the course of days, I started to see that as the wake we leave. You now what is the wake we have left here each moment, sitting, walking? What is the wake that we leave in our life? Because you can, you can. it's a tangible wake. The, the wake of irritation, the wake of aversion, the wake of fear, the wake of happiness, the wake of contentment. It's so tangible. So even though we go through really large ups and downs in our life, and on a retreat, uh, try to remember your deepest motivation for being here on the planet. And the more you touch into this deep motivation, you'll be committed to developing more mindfulness, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, Because the wake that you leave will be very happy and peaceful. And that's a very joyful thing to do. And then we can appreciate that. Let's sit for a minute. May our happiness and joy never end.